0: Thanks, Edmund. Well, good evening. Welcome. Uh, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here at Unichurch. Uh, and tonight, uh, we're starting this new series in 2 Samuel. And I'm pretty excited. Uh, we've just had a week of holidays, so not this week, just gone, but the one before. Sarah and I were away, and I came back this Monday, and I was like, great, 2 Samuel, we're getting into this book. Open it up, and remember that I'd agreed to Lachlan's crazy pr- plan of preaching five chapters the first week I get back from holidays, which is a quarter of the book. So tonight, uh, settle down. Uh, It'll be fun to see this story and what it is speaking about and see our God and who he is. So why don't we pray that God would help us to understand his word and his actions throughout history. Let's pray. Father, tonight, as we think through the way you have acted throughout history, as we see the events that have gone on and the way you have kept your promises, we pray that you would show us how we might respond to you and your promised King. That we might come away from having heard your word, having heard you. And that you might challenge us to live our lives and encourage us to live our lives trusting your Son Jesus. Amen. Well, just over 3,000 years ago, The Game of Thrones was no fictional TV series. It was the real life events of the people of the ancient Near East recorded in this epic battle between one nation, Israel, and its array of neighbors. It even becomes an epic battle at one point between Israel itself as Israel attacks itself. The book of 1 and 2 Samuel, which is really one book divided into, tells the the true story of civil war, of assassinations, of deception, of love, of revenge, all these events that happen in history and point to something that we'll see tonight is actually about the God who is behind them all. But the question for us is why do we care? Why do we care what happened three thousand years ago? How does that impact us today? Besides maybe a fun trip to you know church to hear a cool story about killing and love and kind of murder and you know. Why do we care? What has this got for us today? Well, as we start, I want to tell you three things that are worth writing down. If you're following along, the outline will help you keep awake and help you keep your thoughts ordered together. Uh, Three things that we can see of why this is very important to us. Number one, everything in the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter one, all the way through to 2 Samuel chapter four, looks forward to what we are going to look at tonight. Everything. Everything it's all pointing forward to this moment when a man named David, and here's a spoiler alert, would be crowned king. He would be crowned God's promised king. Everything from Genesis 1 to 2 Samuel 4 points forward to what we see tonight. Number two, it's important because everything in the Old Testament from 2 Samuel through to 1 Kings and then the end of Malachi looks back to this man David. Genesis 1, all the way through to Samuel, looks forward. The rest of the Old Testament looks back to see that this king was, in fact, the king that all the expectations we have of God's kingdom is built on. The story of this man, David, and his kingdom was the beginning of something of monumental importance for the whole world. And we get to see that tonight. And number three, it's important because it was written for you. It was written for us. Paul says in Romans 15, it's on the screen, for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we might have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we might have hope. This was written, preserved throughout history, translated and presented to you and to me so that we might learn from it, so that it might instruct us how to live and who to live for, and that by hearing what it has to say, we might have hope. We might have hope. Here at UniChurch, our firm belief is that there is a God. And that he's made himself known most clearly in the person of Jesus, the historical person of Jesus that really lived and walked on this earth. And then that the scriptures that have been recorded for us of the life and times of Jesus reveal him to us more, but not only the New Testament that talks about Jesus, but also the the Old Testament, the way that God worked throughout human history. And so rather than us standing around waiting for God to speak out of the sky and tell us what his will is, which he never promises to do, We make it our habit to hear what he has said through his prophets, through his followers, through those who've known Jesus, to see how God has acted throughout time and to see how those actions fit into the overarching plan that centers on Jesus. And by hearing what God has done through real people, throughout real history, we get to see what God's will for us is today. We get to hear God. If you're new to Christianity, you'll soon see that In this book, we call the Bible, you'll not only hear of how God acted throughout history, but how he still acts toward you today. And we'll hear what that means for the way we act towards him and others in the world he created. In this book, this collection of books called the Bible, we meet God. I want to encourage um, you to to check out two books that will help you to understand the Old Testament. Uh, One is called God's Big Picture. Has anyone read that? Show of hands if you've read this. Brilliant. Um, if, put your hands up if you found this helpful for understanding the Old Testament. I see they all put their hands up again. If you have not read this, this is a very helpful book that helps you to connect how the whole thing is one big picture. It's short and skinny, and it's kind of it's good. But basically, that's primary school stuff. Like you guys are here at university. You're here to think. You want to think carefully. If you've read that and you're like, "This was great," you need to read this. This is called According to Plan. Um, That book is a summary of two chapters of this. This is really how God's plan fits together with great detail. So if you've read the first one, buy this tonight, get it outside, get it on Kindle. It is a fantastic book to help you to understand how the Bible fits together in one big picture. But what we're going to see tonight in 2 Samuel is that the record of these events that happened over 3,000 years ago have got tremendous implications for you and me. Tremendous, and they do they'll help us with our hurts. This word will help us to see what is good and right and how we respond to what's good and right. This message, these events will help us to see who is in control of this crazy world we live in. And they'll help us to work out whether we are part of God's kingdom or another's kingdom. They'll help us to work out if we really love God or not. And they will give us hope. Not just some kind of sentimentality, you know, like, I hope one day I'm famous. You know, people say that, you know, I hope I can fly. Well, that's great, you know, brilliant. Not that sort of hope, but a guarantee that if you trust in the king that this passage is pointing to, if you put your life in his hands, you will one day be the son or daughter of God the king himself, and that you will inherit the universe. That is the hope that is on offer if we understand who we are being addressed by. So, let's quickly look through the story so far. You see you've got a nice little graph up on the screen or in in your um, outlines there. You can go home if you've got a magnifying glass, read what the dates are. Um, But let's quickly go through and say, where are we up to right now? Where are we up to in this big plan of what's going on? So firstly, in the very beginning, God created the world. He made the world. It was His world and He made it the way He wanted it to be. And He created Adam and Eve to rule the world under Him. to to look after everything, but to have him as their God. But Adam and Eve, while it was great for a while, decided that they would be a better God than God. And they decided that they would reject what God said. They would reject his good commands, his good word to them, and say, look, we want to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they did. They made themselves little mini-gods and said, we don't need you, God. And ever since humanity walked out on God, God threw humanity out of the Garden of Eden. Our hearts became twisted because we weren't listening to God. Even the good that we do today is motivated by rebellion against God for for, for our own purposes and plans. And so God scatters humanity across the earth at the Tower of Babel. But we keep hearing these repeated themes. While God could have wiped out humanity at that point, and he almost did with Noah. Despite our twisted natures and our ignorance of the God who loved us and made us, God is for his creation. He's a God who loves those he made. And so he plucks from all of his people, a man named Abraham. And he gives him some promises that have got nothing to do with how good Abraham was, but all to do with how good God was toward Abraham. There's nothing intrinsically good or attractive about Abraham. God chooses him and through him, to bless the rest of the world. There are four promises and they control pretty much the rest of the Bible. They're found in Genesis 12, but let me just tell them to you. Four promises God gives Abraham and you can write these down. There's four points. One, two, three, four. Number one, God will give Abraham many descendants and make him into a great nation. He will have many, many descendants and be a great nation. Number two, That this nation will possess a promised land, their own place, and they'll have rest from all their enemies around them. The enemies won't attack them anymore before they will be this great nation. They will have no more enemies. Number three, that God would be their God. God would choose them as his people. He would reveal his name to them. The way a bride chooses a husband, God chose Israel and loved them. And number four, through this ruddy nation, all the nations on earth would be blessed. The way God was going to bring blessing to all of his creation, that includes everyone, even you and me sitting here today, was through this nation, Israel. Now again, this is not just some random verse pulled out of the Bible. It's key for the whole Bible and the promises of the Bible keep coming back to it. But we see that the promises to Abraham are not fulfilled in him. He doesn't get all that in his lifetime. He has a son called Isaac, and Isaac has a son called Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them has an amazing Technicolor dream coat. You might have heard of him, Joseph. All right, he's just playing down at the Civic, I think it is at the moment. The story of Joseph is an amazing story of how his brothers hate him because he has these dreams, and they basically go to kill him and then sell him off to slavery in Egypt. And and off they go, he goes out to slavery, and then through God's amazing turn of events... God puts Joseph in the position of being Pharaoh's number one advisor. And God sees uh, Joseph tell Pharaoh that there is famine coming. And through this, they stock up. They stock up for seven years. And then this famine comes. And God saves not only the Egyptians, but Joseph's family who come back to him. God saves Israel through this evil event of the brothers and brings about his good purposes. Israel are there, and at that point, there's about one million of them. They grow, and they grow in in Egypt. They've got some of these promises to Abraham being fulfilled. They're already a large nation, but they don't yet have their own own land. And then the Egyptians start punishing them, because there's a new Pharaoh, and the 400 years they're in slavery in Egypt, and you're like, what is happening to the promises of God? Then steps in a new man called Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses leads God's people across the Red Sea, out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, up to the, the Mount Sinai where God speaks and gives his people the Ten Commandments. He's made his people into a nation. They're no longer under slavery. He's blessing them. But they're not yet in their own land. And they've not yet blessed other nations through them. Then that's where Exodus to the book of Judges is all about. When you get to Exodus all the way through to the book of Judges, you see God is fulfilling His promise of getting His people into the land that He's promised them, with rest from their enemies. And we get to the end of Judges, just before 1 Samuel, and it ends with these words. And you're wondering, what were they like? Were they listening to their God? Or were they acting like Adam and Eve? Listen to Judges 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever he wanted. It's a major disappointment. They didn't listen to God. They did whatever they saw fit. They didn't treat God as their king. And so the book of 1 Samuel starts with a leadership crisis in Israel. Look, a nation who was looking for a leader. Now, of course, they had a leader. (laughs) They had God. They just refused to follow him. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. They wanted to have their own king. Like, look at the Philistines. They've got their own king. Look at the Amalekites. They've got their king who's leading them. We need a king to make us a real nation, God. We know you're going to promise us these blessings in this land, but to get them, no offense to you, but we want our own king. Listen to the way uh, they bring it up in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's on the screen. So all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they went to Samuel, who is a prophet of God at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old, and your sons do not follow your example. that's exactly right. His sons were absolute dropkicks. They just did all sorts of wrong. They were horrible guys. He says, therefore, appoint a king to judge us, to lead us, the same as all the other nations have. You can kind of hear the whining in their voices, right? Verse 6, when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel, God's prophet, his spokesman, considered their demands sinful. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord told him, listen, The people and everything they say to you, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, abandoning me and worshipping other gods. They thought they could get the blessing of God through other means than the way God had set up. And how often do we do that? How often do we seek the blessing of God through our way, not his? We want to mold or shape his word. We are children just like Adam, just like the Israelites. Well, God, in the end, says the people can have their king as long as the people and the king serve the true and living God as number one. You can have a king, but God must be number one. Have a look at uh, verse 13 of chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. It's on the screen. Now, here is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king that the Lord has placed over you. If you fear the Lord and worship and obey him, and if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who rules over you will follow the Lord your God. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you and your ancestors. This king was a man named Saul. The man that the people chose in rebellion against God. The man who, 1 Samuel records, was more impressive than anyone else in Israel. If you were going to pick a king, you'd pick him. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. If you wanted a king to fight a giant from another nation, he'd be the one to fight him. Because Saul was so tall and so grand and so impressive, to humans' eyes they thought, this man is our king, what a great nation we will be. How offensive they were to the God who was far greater than Saul could ever be. Not even one chapter later, Saul lets kingship get to his head. He refuses to obey God's word through Samuel. God says, to wipe out the Amalekites completely. This nation had been so awful and horrible to to Israel and to the nations around them. God says, go and take their land and get rid of them totally. Do not leave one person. But Saul thinks it would be a great thing to keep their king. A good bargaining chip for the other nations. We've got the king of the Amalekites. Samuel comes and says, what have you done? Not quite. Look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. God had set up a king to reign forever. But that king would not be Saul. The story of one Samuel is a story of monumental failure. It's an experiment that Israel tried of putting in a human king under God that just did not work. Appointing a man-made king to achieve God's purposes. Saul is a monumental failure. But the next verse gives us great hope. Look at verse 14 of chapter 13. But the Lord has found a man loyal to him. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Samuel tells Saul that there is another king who will come, one that has been loyal to God. Literally, God has found a man who is loyal to him or according to God's own heart. And this man, we find out, is a man named David. He's the man who, after Jesus, has the most written about him in the entire Bible. He is the man. But what I'm about to explain to you is so important to understand that if you get this wrong about David... You get all of 1 and 2 Samuel wrong, and you get the whole of the Bible wrong. See, what was the difference between Saul and David? Saul, shocking king. David ended up being a great king. We're going to see the type of king that he was in a moment and throughout the weeks as we look through this book. But he he was honorable and good. What was the key difference? Well, the key difference was this. Saul was the king that the people chose. But David was the king God chose lots of people read the story of 1 and 2 Samuel and they think that David was a better king than Saul. While that's true, that is not why God chose him. He was better than Saul because God chose him. That's what made him better than Saul. See, People think that that David was this man who had God in his heart. He was after his own heart. But literally, the words there say God chose him according to his heart, according to God's heart. David didn't have God in his heart. He was not somehow intrinsically more godly than Saul. Spoiler alert number two, we'll see in three sermons time that he stuffs it big time. He does all sorts of atrocities. He doesn't keep it together for very long either. But David did not have God in his heart God had David in his heart. Do you see that? God chose David. Despite who he was, despite being the smallest and youngest in his family, God chose a 15-year-old prepubescent shepherd boy called David to be the king of his people and lead them forever. This story is not about David. It's about the God who chose him and what that God would do through him. A thousand years after David, his great, 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 great grandson was born in a shepherd, in a stable. And his name was Jesus of Nazareth. That son, that child would be the king of kings and lord of lords. In Jesus, we see everything that David couldn't do fulfilled to a greater and brighter and better extent. Everything about Jesus has his roots in this man, David, so much so that when the New Testament opens, we hear about the genealogy of Jesus and it goes, Abraham, David, Jesus. This Jesus was God, the son himself and his reign would last forever. And everything we see in 2 Samuel points forward to who Jesus is and what he would do. And so in order to understand Jesus, we need to understand this man, David. For well, Jesus was not only a descendant of David, but he was the complete fulfillment of him. Okay, so there we go. Story so far. Let's look at 2 Samuel now. Welcome. 2 Samuel then starts with these words. After the death of Saul. Stop there. After the death of Saul. They seem small and insignificant in some ways. But in order to understand what 2 Samuel is about, we need to understand what has happened between David and Saul. Saul was the king the people chose. David was the king that God had chosen. But what had happened between uh, the moment that Saul lost his kingship or from God, the Spirit of God left him, then David the next kind of day or the same day was anointed king, There's a long period of time before David was actually installed as king because Saul lived. And to understand what is going on here and David and Saul's relationship, we need to understand how hard it had been for David. Saul's rejection of God and David's appointing as king was 1 Samuel 13 and 16. When David becomes finally king, 2 Samuel 5, 15 years later, Fifteen years, he's waiting. He's been anointed as God's king. Now, that word anointed is, is a technical term. And we, we don't use it that much because we don't often see um, kings or queens being coronated. But at the coronation, at the moment, they're, they're chosen to be king. They'll get some oil and they'll pour oil on them. It happened with Queen Elizabeth II. They put oil on her head and it will happen at some point. Who knows who will follow them? But anyway, it'll be scary. But it will happen. And here, to anoint someone is to, is to call them the king. The Hebrew word for anoint is Messiah. You might have heard that. The anointed is the Messiah. Or the Greek word is called the Christ. It's the promised king. So every time we read about God's anointed, we're hearing about God's promised king, God's Messiah, God's Christ. The moment Saul lost his kingship, David was secretly anointed by Samuel as God's promised king. The spirit of God leaves Saul, but he remains as king. He is no longer God's Messiah completely, yet he's still in that role of king. And for 15 years, David waits. We need to understand what that was like, waiting for 15 years, because it was no stroll in the park, no walk amongst the pedals. No sooner than David is anointed, Saul then requests that he has an assistant, because he's kind of upset and troubled, he's a kind of... He's got issues, Saul, and he's kind of concerned about his life and what's going on. He's kind of anxious all the time. And kind of imagine him in battles, kind of biting his nails and not going out against Goliath because he's scared, even though he's head and shoulders above everyone else. So he asked for someone to come and play some tunes on, on the harp. And do you know who the resident local harp boy was? David. And so they get David, and David comes and lives with Saul. It's crazy. David's been anointed as God's promised king, and yet he's living with the one who won't be king. But Saul doesn't know that David's been anointed. And so he's there playing the harp, soothing Saul. But it doesn't take long before David gets a bit of a reputation. See, the Philistines are attacking Israel, and the Philistines have this secret weapon called Goliath. He's huge, head and shoulders above all the Philistines. If only Israel had a weapon that was head and shoulders above everyone else. But where was he? Scared at home. Every day the Goliath would walk out and say, send out your warrior to fight me. If your warrior can beat me, we will hand over all the Philistines. But no one would go against him. They were scared. Until one day this little shepherd boy hears the call of this Goliath and says, how dare he speak to God's chosen people like that? God is bigger than this puny ant of a Goliath. And so David goes back to his harp-playing boss or his harp-listening boss and he, and he says, look, look, I think I need to go out against him. He's like, all right, they put all the kind of armor on him and that, that's we, it was too heavy. He runs out, he throws a rock. Goliath is felled and David is crowned the Goliath killer. He gets a reputation. Everyone loves him. Saul then puts this boy in charge of his armies and he becomes a great warrior and, he, and he, he leads the armies and they beat people and win battles all because he trusts in God. David's not that special, but the God who chose David is. The, the God who has David in his heart and is working through him is saying it's got nothing to do with David and everything to do with the true king who fulfills his promises. Well, David gets such a rep that some of the women start singing about him. In the streets, there's songs, oh David, you know, everyone's loving him. Seriously, there was a song that went like this, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, if you're a kind of anxious, not very stable type of king, how do you reckon that's going to feel playing on the 3,000 year old radio? You're like, oh, everyone's singing to Saul's killed thousands, woo, but David's like 10,000. It makes him jealous. Listen to exactly what goes on in 1 Samuel 18, verse 8. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained. But they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Those words end up coming true. So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Saul hated David. From that moment on, he wanted to kill him. Remember, 15 years? That's exactly what he tried to do. I want want you to imagine this for a moment. I want you to imagine you are God's promised king. You are the Messiah. Now, it's not usually ever good to think that you are the Messiah. Sarah keeps telling me that the position of Messiah has already been taken. doesn't need to be me. All right? But but I want you to put yourself in, in, in the shoes of the Messiah of David here. You are God's anointed king. The God of the universe has said, you will be the one to rule my people forever. Like, you got someone pretty good on your side. You are the one who will succeed the current king. But the king is on some rampage to kill you. Saul tries to spear him at least twice. He tries to kill him. He's like, get out of the... I don't don't want you around. His jealousy kind of enrages him. He hates it. And then he gets to one of the pinnacles of Saul's kind of attacking of David. And it's a crazy story. Uh, In 1 Samuel 18, Saul hears of all people that his daughter, Mikael, wants to marry David. You're like great. My daughter wants to marry this kind of pop princess boy who's winning all these battles and he's probably going to take my kingdom from me. Now, you think any good parent who hates the guy that their daughter loves is going to say, no way, over my dead body. But but listen to what Saul says. 1 Samuel 18 verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give him to her, Saul Thought. Now, I need to ask you, when the man who wants to kill you wants to give you his daughter in marriage, do you really want to marry that daughter? That's his punishment. I want to give you my daughter. I hate you so much. I'm going to let you marry my daughter. What sort of a piece of a work must Mikael be at this point for him to go, you can have her, <laughs> right? You can keep her. I don't want her anymore. I don't know what's going on here, but it's not a great thing. Then he goes, I'll lure her in. And so he says, you can have her. You can have her. I don't mind. He can be my son-in-law. No problems at all. The price for you to have my daughter is 100 Philistine foreskins. Kid you not. 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, I don't know if you know this, but most men don't just go, oh, yeah, no problem. Here's mine. You don't know, kind of walk into a bar and go like, "All right, guys, look, I've got a collection. I'm going to marry this girl. Who wants to give me their foreskin?" Like that doesn't happen. The way that happens is they kill you. They kill you to get that. No man is handing over that at all. So David walks off. He wants David to die. He wants him to go against his enemy and die. That's what he's doing here. But in verse 29, David comes back, not with 100 but 200 Philistine <laughs> foreskins. This guy. He's amazing. <laughs> you ever think about getting married? There's a tip for you, straight from David. No, I don't. <laughs> Saul is so angry that he raises his whole army together and drives them against David and gives Michal to someone else. He denies his word. He doesn't let it happen. Saul hates David. David and his men are driven then to live in caves. This is God's promised king. Living in caves, hunted by Saul and his raging jealousy, trying to hold on to his position, clutching at whatever he can. For 15 years, he is living this way. We need to understand at this point, what's going on here has profound implications for how we live See, if anyone was blessed by God at this point, surely it was David. He's the one who'd been promised to be God's king. He was the chosen king, the Messiah, the man in God's heart. There's nothing fancy about him, but God chose him. How secure can you be? How blessed could you be to be the one whom God chose? But his life didn't look very blessed, did it? Can you imagine the temptation on David? To bring about God's promise a little quicker than God intended? To kill Saul? To bring about what God had promised would happen just in in David's timing? Can you imagine the temptation to do what would be a little more convenient? Three times it's recorded that David actually has a chance to kill Saul. One time, Saul and his whole army are hiding in a cave. Sorry, let me start again. I keep doing this. Just whenever I, I, I reverse Saul and David, just yell at me. Right? I keep doing it all the time. Let me start again. Three times, David had the chance to kill Saul. Um, David and his whole kind of band of followers, his little army, is gathered in a cave. There, they're huddled up, hiding from Saul who's on his rampage. But Saul needs to go to the toilet, like you do when you're kind of rampaging to kill someone. And so he's like, I need to find a cave. And, and comically, they pick the cave that David and his army are in. And Saul kind of walks in. Oh, I don't know how you keep an army quiet. But Saul walks in and is relieving himself in the cave. And David is there. How tempted would you be? Just off with his head. If you can take 200 Philistine foreskins, you can take off his head right there and then without a problem at all. David creeps forward, but he won't touch him. He just cuts off the corner of his robe and holds onto it. Saul walks out. Then when he's at a good distance, David yells out and says, Saul, I was there. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Stop pursuing me. I'm not trying to end you. What a man. Who would respond that way? Saul kind of is ashamed and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and kind of goes home. But then it happens again. He gets home. He's like, nah, stop it. I'm going to kill David. <laughs> and he's like, I hate this. This guy is still out there. So he turns around and chases him again. This, 15 years this goes on. This other time, Saul is sleeping on his rampage. They kind of go to sleep at night. They're in there. He's got all his men around. They fall into such a deep sleep. It said God calls them to go into such a deep sleep that David and a few of his SAS soldiers are able to walk in while he's sleeping on the floor. And they take his armband and they take his spear. And they slowly creep out. Again, could have killed him. They stand at the other side of a valley. It's the quiet of the morning. And he's like, Saul! (laughs) Ha ha ha! I could have done it again. Would you stop chasing me? I am not trying to kill you. David's integrity is just so good. He is a man who is, well, God has chosen to be that way. Time after time, David has the chance to take Saul's life, to end his misery, to end and to bring about God's promises for him, but he doesn't. Why? (laughs) Why? When God has promised you will be the king. Well, the answer to that is what has great implications for the way that you and I live today. See, it is possible to be the most blessed and anointed servant of God and live a life of absolute terror. The blessing of God does not mean that life will be rosy here and now. Look at David. It does not mean that we will get what God has promised in the time that we want or in the way that we want. What does it look like to be the blessed of the Lord, to be God's anointed here. It looks like being destitute, being driven into caves, hunted down, being poor, being full of misery. We've got to adjust the way we think about God's blessing. And it's not just David here. I'm not just making a case from one person. The writer of Hebrews catalogues all the great ones of faith, all the blessed ones throughout church history. Listen to what he says, Hebrews 11.32. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. Through faith they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight and women received back their dead, raised to life. But others were tortured, not accepting release, to obtain a better life, to obtain resurrection to a better life. And others experienced mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawed apart, murdered with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, though the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountain caves and openings in the earth. And all these were commended for their faith. Yet they did not receive what was promised. For God had provided something better for us so that they would be made perfect together with us. David models imperfectly what his descendant Jesus would model perfectly. That suffering does not indicate God's rejection of his people. But that God uses the grief and the pain to mould his people to bring about His salvation so they might trust Him at the end, so they won't get enamored with the things in front of them that will not deliver, but they will see the greater hope of life forever. That will depend on the God who is really in control, not themselves as mini-gods. The implication of this is that if you live trusting God, if you live as someone who trusts the promises of Jesus, if you live as a blessed child of God, you won't always have your cancer healed. You won't always have easy relationships. It's not promised to you that you find a husband or a wife and that that marriage goes well or be rosy or that you have a family that works well or that your relationships within your family will be good or that your friends will love you. None of that is promised. You won't always have money on tap. But it does not mean you are not blessed. It does not mean you are not blessed. For if you trust in God's anointed king and the promises that he has offered you, then you have a certain hope, a future that lasts forever, that dwarfs the things that we chase now. What makes us think that God's blessing means life will always go well? What makes us think that? The Bible is clear. God in his goodness brings grief into our life so that we might endure to the end, so that we might depend on him and not ourselves, so we might be made more like Jesus. The greatest gift in life, it is not prosperity now, but a trust in God through thick and thin. Trust that God is in control and he'll bring about his promises. See, it's not the easy times that strengthen us and help us to endure. Have you ever trained for a marathon by sitting on a couch, watching guys on TV running? Like, oh that guy's good. He's got red shoes. I should get me some red shoes. It doesn't do anything for us being able to run a marathon. It's the trial. It's when the things are hard that God molds us and shapes us into who he wants us to be. That's what stretches us to endure to the end, trusting in the God who is really in control and pulling away the false security of the things that we trust, money, pleasure, power, security, comfort. What does it look like to be blessed by God? I hope the story of David changes your perception of that, for we need to be ready. But secondly, how do we live according to God's plan? David trusts God the whole way through. He doesn't bring about God's purposes his own way. He he trusts God. Have a look at the way he responds now to the news of Saul's death. Well, actually read more of 2 Samuel 1. He lives according to God's plan, not his. Have a look at this narrative with me, okay? 2 Samuel 1. Uh, If you've got your Bible open, read along there. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. Notice this. The Amalekites were the ones that Saul didn't take out. They didn't, he didn't kill their king when he should have. David's returned from doing what Saul could never do, defeating the Amalekites. And you're like, there's victory here. What will happen? He stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. What would you be thinking? What's he going to say? When he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David asked him, where have you come from? You can imagine what's going through his head. Have you been there? What's happening with Saul, right? He replied, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from the battle, he answered. Many of the troops had fallen and are dead. Also Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. How would you respond to that point? David asked the young man who'd brought him the report. How do you know? How do you know Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And look with me on the screen at what he says on verse 6 of chapter 1. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me. So I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me. Who are you? I told him I'm an Amalekite. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me for I am mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm and I've brought them here to my Lord. What would you say to that servant? How would you respond if you were David? Joy? Relief? Finally, 15 years I've been living in caves. Finally, it seems that the promise of God has come. He is fulfilling His plan. Finally, this is the moment. Look at verse 11. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And all the men with him did the same. They mourned, they wept, and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword, for Saul, for his son Jonathan for the Lord's people, and for the house of Israel. Grief is how David responds. He is sad, and, but it's not grief that's merely for Saul or even for his good friend, friend Jonathan, who was a great mate, his best mate. Look at what he says in verse 14. David questioned the Amalekite, How is it that you are not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This is going to be a scary moment. How is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand against the Lord's anointed? Then as if he's so angry he can't do it himself, he summons one of his servants and said, come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. What grieves David the most is not his own personal grief of losing his friend Jonathan, or that is definitely there. It's not the grief from using the human king of Israel called Saul. The grief that comes here is the grief that comes when people take down what God set up. It's the grief that comes when people reject the true and living God and his plan and take it into their own hands. Saul was God's anointed. He was The Messiah at one point, yes, no longer the full sense, but he was still in the position of king over Israel. And anyone who removes God's anointed other than God himself has effectively put himself in the place of God. They've offended God. How dare you take God's anointed king's life, no matter how dead he looked like he was about to be. This Amalekite made the most ultimate of errors and he would pay the ultimate price, his life. For he did not take seriously God's anointed king. What grieves David is what grieves God, that people try and bring about his plans their own way. Ironically, we find out from the chapter before it in 1 Samuel 31, the Amalekite didn't even kill David. Sorry, didn't even kill Saul. Thank you, whoever whispered that. The Amalekite, extra biscuit. Um, The Amalekite didn't even kill Saul. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Check it out a little bit later. The last chapter of 1 Samuel, Uh, he he happened to see what went on. What really happened was that David died and David said, well, David got stabbed. Oh, thank you. Sarah said I did it three times this morning, so I'm almost there. I've got to beat it. All right. Um, So Saul is there. And and, and he's been stabbed with this spear, and he says to his armor bearer, Kill me now! And his armor bearer says, No. Why? You don't mess with God's anointed. There is a greater king than Saul. And so David pulls his own sword and kills himself. Saul pulls his own sword and kills himself. At that point, the armor bearer kills himself as well because of the travesty of God's anointed king dying. Obviously, this Amalekite had been nearby saw an opportunity, you know, it's not too bad. No one will really know. And so he went, oh, look, I'll just run along and I'll I'll take the the, the crown and the armband to David and I'll be friendly, friendly with David and look how good that will be for me. I will trust that God will bring about good things for me because I have killed David's enemy, Saul. How stupid to mess with God's anointed, to not take God's anointed seriously. True favour comes... From taking God at his word. From taking God at his word. Not shaping God's word into our own plans. Not using his promises to advance our position on our terms. Throughout the next three and four chapters of 2 Samuel, the same thing keeps happening. People try and bring about their comfort or their justice or their restitution or God's blessing by their own means. And David every time says no. Every time someone tries to bring about making him king by their own means in any other way apart from God doing it, David kills them or sends them away. Friends, the world we live in no longer thinks that Christianity is relevant. For a long time, the world around us has said that Christianity is kind of a crutch, it's just not relevant for our world, and it's kind of gone along saying, oh, don't really mind about christianity but it's just not really relevant for me but i have started to notice of late that the world around us is beginning to see christianity not only as irrelevant but as wrong and evil and becoming violently opposed to it how dare you have a view that men and women are not the same How dare you restrict people's love for one another because of some silly view you have? That is so disgusting to the way I think. Why would you be so cruel to people? How could you be so closed-minded as to say that your God is the only way? We're not going to let you speak about your God being the only way because that is so closed-minded. Unless something drastically changes over the next 30, 40, 50 years, it's going to get much and much and much worse, much, much, much harder much less comfortable to be a Christian in the world that we live in because the gospel is repulsive to the world around us. And the temptations will come to us to compromise God's word, so we might bring about his blessing. The temptations will come to cut corners on the word of God, to say, oh, it's all right, we don't think the way. The Bible's a little bit antiquated here. God didn't really mean that because we want to fit in with the world around us. We want to be like the nations around us. Not like the God who made us. The life of David sets the principle of what it is like to live life as part of God's kingdom. To live life according to his plan. David keeps God's promises. He trusts them. David keeps his own promises. You know, he promised at one point to to Saul when Saul said, okay, I won't kill you. And David says, great, we're friends. And then Saul said, just don't kill my children. So Saul keeps that, David keeps that promise to Saul. He does it. He keeps his word because God is the God who keeps his word. He takes God at his word the whole way through. He sits under the plans and purposes of God, even though they bring him great pain, great grief, great sorrow, great poverty. He trusts that his God is good and that he is faithful and that he will deliver him as he has promised. The question is, Are you convinced that following Jesus is more precious than gold? Are you convinced that following Jesus is more precious than your comfort now? More precious to you is following the true king than being politically correct or having prosperity in your life or a career progression or a a husband or a wife. Are you convinced that Jesus is the best way to live your life? Because if you are not, you will not endure. You will seek what you consider to be God's blessing your own way at the expense of God's word in rebellion against God. You will not see God's forgiveness. We will not experience the promises that he has offered because we've rejected the God who has loved us and saved us. You have rejected God's anointed king. If Jesus is not the king of your life, then you have taken God's anointed off his throne yourself. You will not enter his kingdom. We will be under his judgment. The Christian life will come with much pain. People will hurt us. Family will hurt us. Friends will say things. People at church will hurt you. You'll feel. Anger towards them. The, the temptation is to get angry at people who hurt us and then to be more critical of those people and see less and less good in them. We need to do that, right? Because when they're, they're just really not a nice person, that gives me the right to keep being at a distance from them, to, to, to remain bitter towards them. We, we can't even sit near them, we can't live near them, we can't even be near these people. That is so far from what David does. That is so far from what God wants for us. David loved and served God's anointed king because he trusted God's plans. Saul had him in caves. Saul was chasing to kill him. I don't know how many people at church are trying to kill you right now. (laughs) Yet David loved him. Yet David trusted God's word. Imagine a community that trusted God's anointed king so much that they put it into practice with one another. Didn't care about themselves, but cared about those whom they'd been called into community with. Who brought things up when there were issues and moved on, knowing that we were broken people, all of us. Imagine a community that took God at his word, no matter what those around us said. No matter what it meant for us, whether it be poverty or pain or, 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 or hunger. How do you do that? Well, you trust the one who is faithful to his promises. He trusts that God will do what he says he will do. He has throughout history. He did for David. He sent his son, David's descendant, who was everything and more than David ever was. What David did by the spirit of God that God placed in him, he, he trusted God. And because of David's great, 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 great grandson, the perfect and more fuller Messiah, we have God's spirit in us. God dwells in us. So we can speak to God. We can ask him to shape us and mold us and to trust him. We can forgive as he forgave others. Why didn't David kill Saul? Because Saul was God's anointed. Had nothing to do with Saul and everything to do with the God who anointed him. It was in response and obedience to God that David didn't kill Saul. So let me ask you this question today. How do you know you love God? How do you know that you love God? That you're one of his people? Well, it's evidenced by our attitude to the things God loves and the things God says. Do you love what God loves? Do you do what God says? Do you let God's promises mold your life. In John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What is on offer is not sentimentality. It's an eternity with God, with our sins forgiven. No more mourning and crying or pain. Do you trust that God will provide it? Does your life evidence that in the way you treat your brother or sister at church? In the way you treat that family member who's so annoying and hard to be around? In the way you treat that boss? The way you don't compromise to make life easier, to be like the nations around you, even if it causes you pain? Do you still trust him that he is good and that he died for you and the future he has offered you is real and will last forever, even when life sucks? The question for us tonight is this. How will you treat the Lord's anointed? Will you trust that in Jesus we've been offered life? Or will you take him off his throne yourself in your time for your purposes so that you might achieve what you think are the blessings of God? There is true freedom, true blessing and true hope that cannot perish, spoil or fade if we put our life in the hands of God's anointed King, Jesus. Will you? Let's pray. Father God, tonight, there's just been so much going on. We've sat back and seen the way that you've worked throughout history, the way that you've kept your promises, that you are good to us your creation, even though we don't deserve it, even though we consistently want to remove you from your position as God. We come here tonight and we confess that we have not treated you as we ought and that we need the forgiveness that comes through the real and true Messiah Jesus who died in our place. We pray tonight, Father, that we would recognize who Jesus is and be so captivated by him that we might trust his word, that your promises are good, that the things that tempt us to compromise are but snares pulling us away from trusting the true king. Father, show us where we attempted to compromise in our actions, in the way we love others, in the way we, we, we put you first and help us to serve you as our king. Thank you that you've forgiven us because of Jesus when we don't do it perfectly. Thank you that in Jesus we can have absolute certainty of eternal life so long as we trust him. And Lord, we pray that you would expand that picture of what you have on offer to us. So large in our minds, that the trivialities of the things that we seek now fade into oblivion compared to the richness of what is on offer and that therefore we live as your people in this world, in the way that David did because you chose him, in the way that we can because you've sent your spirit into us, trusting your son, loving those around us, living as people who point to Jesus as our king. Father, help us to treat Jesus as he is, your anointed king. Amen.